This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. There's no ROI on TMI. That's why TD Ameritrade created a learning experience that will actually learn with you. Curated from their vast library of exclusive content, it customizes to fit your investing goals, interests, and needs, so you get exactly the information you need and none of the information you don't. Get started at tdameritrade.com education. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com education. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is to just entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. I hate to say it, but I think the buyers are getting complacent in this market. They know nothing. After a day where the Dow gained 45 points, this would be advanced 0.29%. NASDAQ climbed 0.30%. Although we were much higher most of the day, this feels like one of those moments where the bulls are trying to have it both ways on a bunch of key issues. That's not good. Some things are mutually exclusive. Today was a good-looking day that was actually quite ugly. Yes, the inside didn't look like the outside. And you know I don't think you should judge a book by its cover. I know hope springs eternal. But today we saw too much hope. Too much hope springs eternal. And some of these hopes simply can't be reconciled. So they won't work in the end. What do I mean? You can't have the bank stocks keep going up while the financial tech stocks also go up. It's either one or the other. Because portfolio managers only go all in on fintech when they're scared to own the banks. You shouldn't have a rally in old tech coupled with a rally in new tech. That doesn't work. They tend to trade in opposite directions. And the biggest contradiction in today's actions, you had the soft goods stocks running right alongside retail. The soft goods stocks are recession plays. The retailers are economic expansion plays. You see how that's problematic? So what is going on here? Where the heck did the rotation out of one and the other go? Why is it that the only pure play industrials were uh, able to buck the upward trend and only because several of them actually gave downbeat analyst presentations today? It's simple. I I know the answer because I've been around for a while. Somebody's wrong. This market's presuming that things are good everywhere, and I know that's not going to pan out because it never pans out that way. Let me explain. For a long time, this market's been hemorrhaging money. Individual investors have left this stock market in droves, hiding their money in bonds, seemingly at any level. In many ways, stocks are still a discredited asset class, even as the average is doing pretty great. These days, the marginal buyers tend to be pension funds, individual investors buying index funds for retirement, or companies repurchasing their own shares. Who can blame them for staying on the sidelines? Stocks do trade erratically. There's no consistency whatsoever. And we've now rallied for seven straight days, a pretty long winning streak that usually means the buyers will soon be exhausted. More on that later. The lack of new capital coming in means we often get whippy rotations, where money flits around from one second to another, depending upon whether the interest rates are going up or going down. But not today. Today, nearly everything rallied. And look, while I'd love to believe that the reason why that is because there's a final tsunami of new money coming into the market, driving everything higher, the statistics say otherwise. In fact, we're experiencing one of the largest migrations from stocks to bonds in ages. No wonder a big IPO that came today, a smile direct, could be one of the biggest first day busts in years. If you bought at the opening, you got hammered. 
Which brings me to the real explanation for the all-too-rosy scenario. I believe that some of these groups of buyers will prove to be just plain wrong, and once the smoke clears, they are going to likely lose a lot of money. First, let's talk trade. Right now, buyers are under the impression that we may be having a fall in our trade war with China because President Trump extended a goodwill gesture by pushing back the next tariff bump by two weeks so as not to coincide with the founding of the People's Republic. Think of it as a birthday present. In return, last night, the Chinese said they'd be willing to make an interim deal on trade if the White House would be willing to separate purchases of goods from their other more serious demands, like intellectual property enforcement, getting rid of those bogus joint ventures when they make our companies join forces with local partners so they can steal all of ideas. Sounds good? Just one problem. It's a complete misread of the situation once again by the Chinese. They just don't get it. Well, I think China may be offering something substantive. You've got to remember why President Trump started the trade war in the first place. Because we've been getting getting kicked in the teeth for years. See, initially he was focused on the trade deficit. If the Chinese Communist Party, I believe, had simply stepped up and bought a lot more goods from the United States, they probably could have nipped this whole thing in the bud, but they didn't. Now the president's digging in his heels, insisting that China addressed all sorts of inequities, the stuff that really matters as far as I'm concerned. And that's why the Chinese response to the president's two-week reprieve is so tone-deaf. We're way too late in the game for him to be appeased by a soybean pie, for heaven's sake. Chinese, what are you thinking? A story floated earlier this morning that the president may want to do a deal soon was erroneous, according to my sources. The truth is, without some concrete change in China that undoes years of unfair practices... Don't get your hopes up. So the people who think we're close to a trade deal, who are uh, people who are buying lots of stocks that benefit good relations with China, I, I think uh, Apple, Starbucks, some of the semiconductors, I, they're, they're going to be disappointed. That's what I'm betting. We're seeing something similar in the bank and the fintech stocks. The people buying Bank of America and J.P. Morgan are betting that the economy is going to get better, which will cause long-term interest rates to rise and make the banks more profitable. On the other hand, the people buying Visa, MasterCard, PayPal are wagering that the economy will weaken. Rates will come down. And you want to own the secular growth stories that can still hit their numbers in a slowdown. Someone's wrong. I suspect the buyers of the big banks could be off base because I don't see much to indicate that we're really getting a stronger economy. For that to happen, the Fed needs to cut rates. And they need to cut them big and soon. And that would give us the boost we need. But I fear Fed Chief Jay Powell will want to be measured. He'll say we need to see further slowing before he cuts again when the Fed meets next week. Plus, it probably doesn't help that the president does keep calling the fellow a bonehead and demanding that he cut rates aggressively. Don't get me wrong. We absolutely need lower interest rates. The president is dead right. We're totally out of sync with the rest of the world. Europe has sub-zero rates, for heaven's sake. That is not a refrigerator. But you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Vinegar's good for descaling the, the uh, Keurig, by the way. So I'm not sure Trump will be able to convince Powell to do what he wants. At the end of the day, either the Fed cuts or it doesn't. They can't do both at the same time, right? I'm betting they'll be too cautious, which means the buyers of MasterCard and Visa are right. And the buyers of big banks? No. Then there's the retailers versus the consumer packaged goods place. We buy the former when the economy's humming. We buy the latter when the economy's stalling. In this case, I'm betting both sides are wrong. I feel like the retail stocks have had much too much of a good thing here and need to be trimmed. And the consumer packaged goods stocks are way too expensive versus their historical valuations and need to be trimmed. Finally, there's old tech versus new tech. Old tech is typically about supporting personal computers and cell phones. New tech is about the cloud. Old tech's rallying on the hope that we'll get a trade deal sometime soon. You know how I feel about that. 
New tech's taking off because these stocks have been hammered and now the sellers are exhausted. Plus, the cloud plays keep reporting good numbers. I trust the cloud. I'm suspicious of the cell phone sales. And uh, I, frankly, I wasn't crazy about the numbers from old line semi Broadcom this very evening. One exception. This remarkable rally in Apple is all about the watch and the service revenue stream growing to the point where they can smooth out the company's sales of handsets while having margins go up and earnings per share increase. Still, even the stock of Apple, and you know I, I always say the same thing. What do I say? Repeat after me. Own it, don't trade it. Even the stock of Apple deserves a, uh, a breather after a truly remarkable run. Trillion dollar company. Bottom line, in all these cases, it's possible that both sides could be right, that I'm too negative. Uh, at the same time, though, while it can happen briefly like it did today, you know what? In my experience, that never lasts for long. And it usually doesn't end happily ever after. I need to go to Casper in Oregon. Casper. Happy Thursday, and thank you for all you do for those of us who learn so much from you. Oh, Casper, you're terrific. Boy, did my daughter love her stay in Oregon. She's moved on, but wow, what a beautiful place. It is, and I also want to let you know I watch your show every day, and if I can't be home to watch it, I make it a, a point to record it. I wow. do not miss you at all. I love it. You know, we get it. You, we've been uh, the show's been around a while, so to hear that is the great verification. It's got to be continue to be around for a while. Oh, and one more thing before I get to my question. I know you want me in a hurry, but I'm also amazed at your energy. I'm a late-nighter as well. Before I go to bed, you're on talking about how the stocks are moving that day. At early at 5 and 6 in the morning, and then at the end of my day, you're there telling us how we can get some mad money in our bank. Oh, you're terrific. Thank you. Hey, by the way, um, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi has the same hours. I didn't know that. Same hours. Okay, let's, let's go to work. <laughs> All righty. Uh, in April, I am a chocoholic. I love everything Hershey. So I've got Hershey stock in April, added it to my portfolio, and it's gone up. Then it went down. Then it went down. Then it went down. Then it went up, 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 down, down, down. And it's just like down again. And I can't figure out what's going on with Hershey. And I read that there could very well be okay. soon a shortage of cocoa. Yeah, there is. Now, there is. Should, there is. Now, here's should the problem. I, should there I get the fat out of my No, out of my no, long term is great, but the stock has moved up way too much. And I've got to tell you, as much as I believe in the company, there was a downgrade today by Sanford Bernstein that made a lot of sense. All the big money that can be made in this, I think, is, has been made. Where have you been all my life? Wow. And thank you for the kind words. Nate in Colorado. Nate. Jimbo, what's You're, going on? I don't know, kind of typical day, doing a little fantasy. How about you? <laughs> same old, same old. Hey, I heard your segment yesterday on uh, the retail stocks, and uh, I was shaking in my boots a little bit. But uh, I got a question for you on Tailored Brand, T-L-R-D. Ooh. And uh, they're not part of the LBO or private equity space that you warned about yesterday, but want to hear your thoughts. Uh, you got to stay away. Uh, I mean, a lot of people were in it for the dividend. Uh, I think that they are. Uh, this is, I don't want to call it a disaster. Let's just call it a um, something you should not own. And dude, it was really remarkable how bad it was, frankly. And, and, and just please don't go near it. All right. All right. You can't have all these uh, contradictions. This is not like, yeah, but it's not, it's not like angles, uh, okay? You're Marty or the other guy. Uh, one side has to be wrong. This action can't last for too long. On Man Money tonight, CrowdStrike is down nearly 25% over the past month. Is that a red flag or a prime time to strike? 
I've got the exclusive of the CEO. Then it's a pretty decent moment for stocks, but I'll tell you why I'd think twice before I'd be buying into the end of the day weakness. And the retail apocalypse doesn't seem to be dying down anytime soon. So why is retailer Everlane opening a brand new beautiful store in Brooklyn? I got a chance to speak, uh, check out the space, speak to the CEO, find out what sets the private player apart. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Maybe you've heard of Slack, but what is it? Slack is your new HQ. One place for everyone at your company to find answers, share updates, and stay caught up. Slack, where work happens. Get started at slack.com. The last few weeks have been wonderful for the averages, but they've been devastating for many of the hottest high-flying stocks, especially the cloud-based software security plays. The rotation out of this cohort has been brutal, and right at the epicenter of the carnage, CrowdStrike. Now, we've talked about this one before. CrowdStrike is a cybersecurity play with a twist. Their platform is based on the cloud, meaning they can harness a lot of processing power to protect all of their client systems from on-premise computers, virtualized machines, cloud-based environments, and smartphones. Plus, they use AI, artificial intelligence, to identify vulnerabilities and predict future threats. That's exactly what this market loved a few months ago. So when CrowdStrike came public in June, the stock exploded higher right out of the gate. The IPO priced at $34. The stock opened at $63.50. And over the next couple of months, it surged to 101 at its peak. But since then, CrowdStrike's been getting pummeled. Stock down nearly 30 points over the last three weeks. Then the company reported last Thursday night. And if you were hoping a great earnings report would turn things around, well, CrowdStrike delivered what I thought was an excellent quarter. A substantial top and bottom line beat. Get this, 94% revenue growth. Management gave better than expected uh, guidance, but nobody cared. The next day, the stock plunged more than 12% because this whole group had suddenly gone out of favor in the Wall Street fashion show. And investors are betting the competition is heating up in the cybersecurity space. The thing is, CrowdStrike's fundamentals are still fantastic. And even expensive stocks do get cheaper as they go down. So could this be a buying opportunity? Let's take a closer look with George Kurtz. He's the co-founder and CEO of CrowdStrike. To get a better sense of how his company's doing and where it's headed, Mr. Kurtz, welcome to Mad Money. Good to see you, George. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you. And congratulations on all your, all your success on many you. different ventures. All right, so straighten things out for us. You did have maybe the fastest growing company quarter that I've seen this year. Uh, and you delivered everything people wanted. Why don't you tell us why you have a proprietary situation and how we shouldn't be fretting as much as people might be doing? Sure. I think one of the things that is really important to understand about CrowdStrike is we focus on stopping breaches. And this has been one of the real challenges in the security industry for many years. Just about every breach you've ever read about had a firewall and had antivirus and they were still breached. So part of what we wanted to do at CrowdStrike was to really redefine endpoint security, but do it from the cloud. If you think about cloud pioneers, a Salesforce, a ServiceNow, a Workday, there really was no security cloud. And when we started the company in 2011, we thought we could be that fourth pillar of security or cloud computing, CrowdStrike, developing and pioneering the security cloud. I have to believe if Amazon Web Services, which we've had on the show, is a partner of yours, well, you couldn't get a better marquee name. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Amazon and uh, AWS is a great partner for us. Uh, as I talked about on the earnings call, we've got a lot of momentum with their marketplace. And we're protecting a lot of the world's leading um, workloads, whether they're in Amazon, Azure, or even the Google Cloud. Now, I know that when I, I talk about what how proprietary you are, I mean, other people immediately say to me, well, wait a second, they have a partnership with Dell. Jim, you had VMware on. VMware just merged with, with Carbon Black. That is going to spell the end of their relationship with Dell. And I have said, well, that's not necessarily the case. Well, the thing about Dell and SecureWorks, where we have our partnership, they've always had a customer choice model. They've always had the option to pick various technologies. And what we found is that customers want the leading cloud-native technology, which is CrowdStrike, which is why we're growing so fast, which is why we're a leader in the Gartner Magic Quadrant. So at the end of the day, for us, it's business as usual, and we believe the customer wants to have the best security, and CrowdStrike is it. Okay. Now, the other day, Zscaler, a really good company. Uh, talked about how it's taking longer to close big deals. And that was interpreted by the people in the conference call, that therefore many people are considering Zscaler versus others. It's no longer just Zscaler like that. Yeah. Is that a correct interpretation? And have you found it harder to close large deals? We have not found it harder to close large deals. In fact, we've closed big deals in a day, particularly when you see these ransomware attacks. You see organizations, state governments being devastated. Uh, people realize that we have the technology to prevent against these breaches and devastating attacks pioneered with artificial intelligence. So when there's a time of crisis, actually, our sales cycle shortens. Now, uh, when people hear the term endpoint, we don't have, some people may not be as sophisticated. Tell people what an endpoint is and why you protect it. Sure. When we say endpoint, we really think about workloads. But an endpoint can be a PC. It could be a server. It could be a cloud workload. It could be a mobile device. It could be uh, an Internet of Things device. And when we say endpoints, we really want people to think about workloads. And the proliferation of workloads as they uh, go forward is going to be something we could take advantage of. No, I, I don't think people can quite grasp the magnitude. Annual recurring revenue increased 104% year over year. You've been around in Silicon Valley. You've done a lot of this. Have you ever had anything that in your career that matched that? I have not seen this, this growth anywhere. And as you pointed out, you know, the fastest growing SaaS IPO ever. Right. Um, it's just been tremendous. And I think security is one of those areas everyone has to have. It is so topical to be able to stop breaches, which is part of our success. In your conference call, you talked about how there were three companies that recently, uh, I I, I don't want to use the term give up, but have sold themselves. And what seemed interesting to me was that's basically saying, you know what, they can compete with CrowdStrike. Is that a too uh, hyperbolic view of it? Because when I read this, I said, hey, if you can't keep up, you sell. Yeah. And, And that's what we've seen in the industry. I think what we've seen in security parallels something like uh, CRM. If you look at Salesforce, right. you know, lots of players like Siebel ultimately sold right. because they couldn't make the transition from on-prem and a perpetual license model to cloud-native, SaaS-delivered, and recurring revenue. Do you get worried when a, uh, when a, a guy like uh, Nikesh Aurora comes home and squawk on the street with, with Palo Alto and says, listen, I think everyone's going to have to understand we've made a series of acquisitions going after guys like CrowdStrike. You know, I think they're a great firewall company. I think one of the things that we focus on at CrowdStrike is being the best endpoint security platform. We spent eight years doing this. We have a lot of DNA doing this. And it's not as easy to just transition and do something else, particularly from a Salesforce perspective as well as a technology perspective. So it's a big industry, but uh, I think our success and where we rank in Gartner is one of the reasons why customers continue 
Tobias. Well, you got the best mousetrap. Maybe that's what matters. You've been around a long time to know that that may be exactly the case. That is George Kerr, CEO and co-founder of CrowdStrike. You can see why I like the stock, but I understand a lot of people are nervous right now about high multiple stocks versus sales and whatever. But how about thinking about the product itself? Mad Bunny's back in. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. In unprecedented times, access to the right information can help you make better informed investing decisions. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to providing a range of relevant educational content, like timely articles, informative webcasts, and access to daily live market news, so you can stay on the path to becoming a smarter investor. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash market hub. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. I'm in a bit of a quandary here. We're in a pretty decent moment for stocks. This is one of the lightest periods for earnings, something I know in my bones, because I set aside time every morning to go over the key conference calls, and today the only one I had to focus on was Oracle, which rarely has any serious pin action. For the rest of tech, that is. No major earnings reports means no major blow-ups. We don't have much news either for the macro front. Uh, surely we had a slightly hotter than expected consumer price index figure this morning, but nothing that would scare Jay Powell away from cutting interest rates at the next Fed meeting. Honestly, I think Powell's in a tough position. Yes, he raised rates way too fast. Uh, uh, that was a mistake. It was a big mistake. But it's not like the economy's exhausted. And he's being labeled a bonehead by President Trump, which is the kind of thing you'd expect to hear from someone like me. But I'm not the President of the United States. We had some movement on the trade talks, but you know where I stand on this issue. I doubt there'll be anything meaningful here one way or another this soon. I understand uh, there to be no truth to the story floated today of an interim trade deal that things aren't... Oh, but let's put it this way. Things aren't as ugly as they've been. Maybe that's pretty, let's say, sanguine. So there aren't a lot of landmines here. In theory, I should feel pretty darn good about the stock market. Yet there's one thing I'm truly worried about, and it's a big thing. I'm talking about the Standard & Poor's proprietary short-range oscillator, the one I've subscribed to for 30 years, because it gives you the best reading on whether the market is getting overbought, meaning there's too much enthusiasm, or oversold, meaning there's too much pessimism. And right now the oscillator says, be careful, be very careful, because as of last night, it stands at 8. And that's not just overbought, it's way overbought. Normally, my discipline says you take profits when the oscillator goes above five. Seeing it at eight makes me very nervous. Now, maybe my concerns will prove to be way off pace. The last time we were this overbought was when Jay Powell changed course and suddenly we were no longer fighting the Fed. So it made perfect sense for stocks to roar higher. The market just wouldn't quit, but that was for good reason. Historically, though, I haven't made such money, uh, any really much money to speak of, buying stocks when the oscillator's at eight. In the same way, I haven't made much money selling stocks when it's at minus eight. That's a classic sign we're extremely oversold. At these levels, the buyers usually run out of ammo, just as the sellers get exhausted when they go down too far too fast. So as I said in my ActionAlertsPlus.com club call this morning over at TheStreet.com, if you have some gains here, you got my permission to ring the register. Take something off the table. Buy it back later, lower. It's the responsible thing to do. Of course, some of you probably think I'm being plain old superstitious. I mean, hey, think about this. Hey, this Warren Buffett, uh, look at an oscillator. But I think that's the wrong way to look at it. Buffett is a buy and hold guy. If he buys a stock and it goes down, so he, he can ta- afford to take a very long-term perspective. When you're as rich as Buffett, you can stay solvent for longer than the market can stay wrong. 
For the rest of us, it makes sense to try to get the best cost basis. That's why I think this is a bad time to buy. When the market gets this overbought, we tend to get a really violent pullback on any negative news. Granted, I don't know where that bad news is going to come from. This is the toughest thing about following my discipline when it comes to this darn oscillator. I have no idea what might go wrong. I just know that until we work off this overbought reading, there's a serious risk of being blindsided. So if you're thinking about starting a position in stock, attributing uh, money for your IRA 401k to an S&P fund, I'm saying it may make sense. Just wait this one out a little. The oscillator is rarely wrong, and it's telling me you're likely to get a better entry point. When in doubt, remember, discipline always trumps conviction. And right now, my discipline says, don't buy, don't buy. Nick in Arizona, Nick! Professor Kramer, how are you? I am well, thank you. How about you, Nick? I'm good, good. And I absolutely love the show and wanted to thank you for teaching me how to teach myself more about investing. Ah, you're terrific. That is my goal. I try to teach every night here. This is my classroom. Thank you. Oh, thank you. And I have a two-parter on Snap-on Tools, ticker symbol SNA. Okay. So I've been, I've owned Snap-on for about a year. Love the company. They have their best-in-class reputation, great management, a good balance sheet, and a healthy dividend that's been steadily growing. Um, so first, do you think Snap-on's a good long-term investment at this level? And second, because of how diversified Snap-on is across so many industries from auto to defense to tech all over the world, including the PRC, do you think this stock's worthy of being sort of a barometer stock like the transports? I think it used to be a great growth stock, and I think it's been very choppy of late. Uh, and uh, that's because I think that maybe some of their prices are too high. There's a little more competition. But most importantly, there's a lot of short sellers in it. And every time Nick Pinchick says something good, they interpret it negatively. So I, what I would call it is a tough own. And I've got to tell you, Nick, one of my things that I teach people is that a tough own is too difficult to own. Mark in Pennsylvania. Mark. Hey, Jim, I have a question. Sure. I've been saving a large sum of money to start the, my entry into trading. But with the recession scare looming, the China trade war going on, and the 2020 election ahead, should I start investing now with this sum of money, wait till the new year, new year is over, or wait until this all blows over? No, no. Look, I don't think we're going to have a recession. I think you just wait till we, the market goes down, say, 3 4 5%. We're too close to the all-time high. We're way too overbought. And while it looks like it's a very good time to buy, I think this last five days have made a lot of people pretty darn complacent. All right, so listen up. We're overbought right now, so think twice before buying, because any negative news could turn into a violent pullback. Don't buy, don't buy, don't buy. There's much more mad money ahead. It offers value-conscious products with a socially conscious message. But can private player Everlane withstand a tough retail environment? I'm going to sit down with the CEO at his brand-new Brooklyn Outpost to find out. Then, does your portfolio have what it takes to succeed in this market? I'll be the judge of that when we play MI Diversified. And know your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with... Kramer. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. David, do you know your house, your apartment? Excuse me? Your apartment. Yes, what you about have it? This is an apartment. <laughs> And you think Senator Warren shouldn't tax more? I'm wearing an apartment. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. By and large, when it comes to supporting companies that value their communities, millennials mean business. And Everlane means business about a new transparent supply chain that connects customers to information they won't get anywhere else. 
with ethical sourcing, materials designed to last, and their very own brand of radical transparency, can Everlane make the clothing industry a better place for customers? In a world where so many retailers are closing physical stores all over the place while desperately trying to go digital, the last thing you expect to see is an exclusively web-based retailer opening brick-and-mortar stores. Yet that's exactly what we're seeing from Everlane, the privately held apparel retailer that built their whole platform around the idea of radical transparency, meaning they show you all the details about the factories, where they make the clothes, how they discover it, how, who runs it, how much it costs, how sustainable is it. With Everlane, sustainability is profitability. Does that sound familiar? It's the mad money concept of impact per share. It's a brilliant model. It's become pretty popular, and frankly, not just with millennials. But lately, Everlane has been doing something a little different. They're opening physical stores in a handful of locations, two in New York, one in L.A., one in San Francisco. The Brooklyn store opened today. We were curious about the shift, so earlier this week, we met up with Everlane's founder and CEO, Michael Praisman, to check out his company's new minimalist store, It is beautiful, and I love the concept. Take a look. Michael, I'm going to break the rules. Talk to my wife, Lisa. We live in Brooklyn right before I came here. And she goes, Jim, tell them it's not apparel. Tell them it's ethos. It's an ethos. Is she right? So happy to hear that. 100% she's right. We are a mission values-based brand, which is you start with the mission. You start with the values. We are always trying to do the right thing, and the product serves the mission. So every product we do, we try to less plastic, less water, we're trying to be thoughtful about the environment and the factories. Now, I, that came up this morning. I was, they've gotten rid of the, uh, of the plastic, but more important, the packaging. You get something from Amazon and it's a landfill in its own right. You care about these things. We're working on something really cool with packaging. I, I can't share yet, but oh, we're trying on. to move. No, I can't. It, it, I can't. We're not, it's we're not, really, it's not it's filming. It's really good. But it's, uh, I'll tell you later, but it's, <laughs> we, our goal with packaging is zero impact. That's what we want. We want this stuff to just completely disappear where it came from. Use recycled materials and then just go back into the planet. Okay, so this is... In the right way. Now, what I want to say uh, very quickly is we've pivoted in our show because we believe that what you just described is actually a great way also to make money. It's what the customer wants. The customer's right. It's the only way to make money, in our view, in, in the long term. Because what's happened now is everybody's too short-term oriented, and eventually that's catching up to us, and it's caught up to us. They say we have 11 years to fix the planet before it's completely irreversible. 11 years, that's short-term now. So we need to really start changing now to affect the planet in the long term, and that's what we're trying to do with everything. When I go into this beautiful store in Williamsburg, I read about things that matter. Uh, I know that people were saying, I never do brick and mortar. I know when you interviewed you last that you weren't pro, but there's a sign back here about what that denim's dirty. I had no idea denim's dirty. This place is also a statement for your ethos, right? What we're trying to do here is as much as provide a new place for people to shop, because we went from digital first to customer first, we're also trying to educate and inspire, help people understand where their clothes comes from and the impact that has on the environment, because if they have that knowledge, they can make an impact as well. And so you see that story of denim. If you pop in, you'll see a story about uh, plastics in another corner. We've got little educational tidbits all throughout here. In the meantime, when I go to the website, it seems to expand, but you're still with radical transparency. You're never going to leave that, are you? Radical transparency and basics. Those are the things. We're trying to provide fundamental basics in people's lives. And in this world, it's apparel and shoes. And then that radical transparency is a way to educate. So it's that it's so people know we're doing the right thing. I mean, where else can you see the cost of the things you buy? We tell you everything. It's pretty hard to run a business that way, but we tell you everything. And you can make money telling people what 
how much your cost is, your margins. People know that we have to make money at the end of the day. And they feel good about supporting someone that's not ripping them off because they trust us. And I think that's what we're missing in this world today is trust. Okay, so trust is also trying to have the, the factories be the best. And yep. one of the things that you said to us last time is that you went to China because you felt like you'd get the cost down. Chinese factories should not be pretty good. But at the same time, we have a president now who doesn't want you to make things in China. What's the right thing to do? Oh, you're walking us down murky territory here. What the right thing to do is we always say do the right thing for the customer and the planet. And for us, we are a global business and we want to be global. And so whether it's made in the U.S., whether it's made in China, whether it's made in Vietnam, we're helping people all around the world. China is a great place and it's one and a half billion people. They have a huge impact on the future of our planet and we've got to pay attention to what's going on there. Can there be a price that the president raises tariffs that will make it so it's just not economic? It's already happening. Really? We've, we've started to move things out of China into Vietnam, Cambodia, Sri Lanka. We're already there, but it's hard. I mean, that strategy of raising 15% tariffs makes it difficult to run a business out of China for all of our production. Now, is that a statement in, your, in itself, or is it just a fact of life? I mean, are you against tariffs, or just, it's what it's what it is, and you got to figure out what the customer wants? I, uh, am I, are we against tariffs? Generally speaking, we're, I would say the way it's being done right now, we're against tariffs. I understand there's global, it's a system, um, but telling people that they have to change in three months and accept, uh, expecting it not to impact the end customer, that's crazy. It's going to hit everybody in holiday. All right. Now, uh, I'm familiar with the Williamsburg area. I'm familiar with the rents. I'm familiar that this is now a high-rent district. One of the things that we don't like about brick and mortar is having to spend a lot of money on rent, and what do we like about online is we don't. Why brick and mortar? Everybody loves to say you don't spend money on online, but the way it works now with Facebook and Instagram and how much it costs to acquire a customer, and then you have to ship it all, you end up, what online-only company is really profitable? Basically, none of them. Yeah. That's this dirty secret. With retail, when we move to customer first, we get to figure out which channel is right and do the right thing for the customer and be profitable. How about a subscription service where for $50 a month I can have someone help me pick the right stuff? And how about uh, something that makes it so that I can also... Uh, wear it for a little bit and bring it back. You know all these different things that people are doing. I love what's going on with the wear it for a little bit and then bring it back. It works really well for the high-end market. Right. We sell basics, a $15, $20 t-shirt. You're not going to wear that a little bit and send it back. It gets a little dirty. It's You're just right. different. So, But I, I'm not a big fan of the boxes and all of that for our business because we don't need people to have more things that they don't need for us. When I go to department stores, I look around... Uh, when I go with my younger daughter, she says, Dad, landfill, landfill, end up in landfill. You actually think about that. You're trying to figure out what shouldn't be in a landfill, what the customer won't put in a landfill. Yeah, and we're trying to make sure that the customer is buying things they want and that will last. So you're not, you're not going to see us doing major fashion trends. We really try to stay in the basics, something that we know you can wear for the next three to five years, ideally longer, but that's up to you. But we know it's going to last. Get this. We just launched yesterday for men a 365-day guarantee. You buy something from one of our 12 items, anything happens to it in the first year, we replace it. I saw that on the site. I said, how are they? They're going to get clobbered on that. They're going to get clobbered. We did all the testing, 50 washes. We did uh, stretch testing. We did color fastness, everything, because things should last. They should last. How Basics should last. And how, you're, how is your consumer doing? They're spending, uh, employment good. Employment's generally good. I, what we're seeing is that people are looking for brands that they can trust right. and adopt because you feel like the world is crazy and you say, what impact can I make? Right. I can vote for somebody and I can, I can vote. Right. And I can vote with my dollars. And so they're looking to vote with their dollars. And so they're coming to brands like us that really are trying to make a difference. It was we're a not perfect, by the way, right? but we're doing no, the I best we can. Yeah, there was a movie, uh, The Graduate, where yep. the secret was plastics. Great movie. 
really great. I remember that. And then it was like at the time where it was in the front of Life magazine and Plastics of the Future. Exactly. Yeah. So where's Plastic now? Plastic, you know, we got to turn the tap off. We got so much of it, 8 billion tons. It's happening more and more. And the, the beautiful statement, you use it for a minute and it lasts forever. That's, <laughs> that's crazy. Right. Well, do my, will my shoes last forever? My unisex shoes? No, because you wear them for a little bit and then you get tired of them. So that's right. why we that's, that's why we are only uh, we're ninety five percent virgin plastic free in our shoes. We're trying to remove all that plastic everywhere we can go. Do you? Uh, you're a computer scientist by background, but oh, you obviously yeah, love. Well, I mean, you love fashion, right? I like design and the impact design can have on people's lives. Okay, so who's your icon? Who do you think of? Now, I mean, I, Other than Jim Cramer. Oh, I really appreciate that. It's certainly the right call, but <laughs> stop. Oh, now my wife is going to kill me. I mean, I showed you the bag that she had, and now she's going to say my head's too big to get out this beautiful glass door. Yeah, Are I there know. people that you respect? And, uh, we look to companies, and, uh, and I think, that are trying to change things. I do. Right, right. I think Whole Foods is a really good one. Well, Rob? I mean... Walter Robb and John Mackey, it's like that, that really came out of an idea that they believe strongly in organic and pioneered the whole movement forward. And then, you know, people don't know this, but they pioneered a lot of standards around beauty because there weren't any. So when they started selling stuff in their stores, they did quite a bit there. Uh, I, you know, we look up to those sorts of companies that have changed an industry from the ground up. Well, I think you're doing fantastic stuff. Yeah. It's really fantastic. Thank you. Uh, one of the few things that my daughter and my wife agree on. Yeah. You are real good at what you do. Man. We'll do our best. Congratulations on all your success. And congratulations on trying to change. Yeah, trying to change thank you. It really does matter. We got more. The thing I'll say is we draw a line in the sand, and we heard this from Walter Rob. You draw a line in the sand, and every year you just try to do a bit better. I'll leave it at that. That's Michael Praisman. He's the founder and CEO of Everlane. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski? Dad, over the lightning round. Let's start with Robert in New York. Robert! Hello, James. So I bought Domo 18 bucks, and okay. I sold half at 38. Right. And all the while, hoping I could have bought more at 18, and now I find we're in that position. That quarter was was fine, but the guidance was really awful. But there has been a lot of insider buying. I would not sell it down here, but I know you're going to have to wait a full quarter before that, that puppy comes back. Wow. Let's go to Michael in Arizona. Michael. Kramer. Yo. Hey, 10 years ago, GM stuck it to the taxpayer and everyone else. Ford did not. They took care of their shareholders to an extent, their bondholders and their customers. They make an excellent product line. Right. And don't forget, guy, Arizona is Ford country. That's right. I forgot that. Okay. Um, here's the problem. Uh, Ford country just got uh, debt downgraded, and I do feel that the company better start. Uh, look, I'm not against zoning Ford here. I just think that you're not going to make a lot of money because we need to see a couple quarters where all they really have is winners, not these areas that keep showing up as losers. Chris in California. Chris, that's geographic. I mean, Chris. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Calling about Four Scout Technologies. We like that. Security controls. We think it's good. Um, that area has got a little price competition these days, but I think it's a good company. Let's go to Chance in New York. Chance. Hey, Professor Klayma. Yeah, Chance. I need your wisdom on a stock that I'm trying to put a position on. Uh, Covetris, uh, C-V-E-T, a Henry Schein spinoff. 
Yeah, no, I don't care for it. I didn't like them as much as Idex Labs. When it was owned by Henry Schein, I didn't care for it. When they spun it off, I don't care for it. I don't care for it. Let's go to David in Minnesota. David. Yeah. Hey, Jim. David in Minnesota here. Love your show. Long-time watcher and first-time caller. Okay. My company is Aero Electronics. Stop Stock symbol. I don't know. Two quarters ago, the company wasn't that good. The last quarter was very good, which is very in keeping the fact that Arrow is a great supermarket of tech. I want to own the stock. I like it more than tech data. Uh, it, no offense, I just like it more. Okay, let's go to Ken in Florida. Ken. Yes, Jim. Thank you. Of course. Uh, really appreciate all your hard work to help people like me navigate the market. Thank you. Now, considering my question is considering Acadia Pharmaceuticals recent positive phase yes. three trial results for dementia related psychosis, do you have an opinion? Yeah, you want to stay in that thing. The- I mean, I think the central nervous system they are doing a lot. It is speculative, but I think they're having some pretty darn good luck, and they've got good science, and that's what matters. And that, ladies and gentlemen, of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. On Monday, I warned you that your growth stocks are going to get annihilated because of the market-wide rotation we're seeing on these huge names. So what do you do? Should you just throw all your eggs in that one basket, watch them go down, and say, woulda, shoulda, coulda? A lot of have done that. You can't, and that's why I play in my diversified. This is where you call me, you tell me your top five holdings. I tell you if your portfolio is diversified enough, maybe you need to mix things up a little. Let's get started. Uh, first, we have a tweet from B. Triv on Twitter who asks, at Jim Kramer, just finished watching yesterday's show, Am I Diversified? Salesforce, United Health, NVIDIA, Goldman Sachs, Disney. The answer is no. You are not diversified, and here's why. This... Salesforce trades with NVIDIA. Why? Because this is that crazy ETF-driven market where you have high multiple stocks all trading together. But here's the problem. If you had another eight, seven, eight stocks, I would say you're diversified. Right now, uh, these are two of my absolute favorite stocks. So what I'm going to say is you can pin, you can ride them right now because NVIDIA is very hot, and I want you to own it. But remember, when NVIDIA gets to, say, 200, which I think it's going to, might have to take some chains up. United Health, obviously, the giant managed care company. Disney, uh, I love Disney. Plus ID, it's going to be good. Goldman Sachs, major, major breakout here. It's finance. It's entertainment. It's high multiple tech, high multiple tech, and healthcare. Make the change after NVIDIA runs higher. Chad in Indiana. Chad. Hey, Jim, a great big five-time caller. Booyah to you from South Bend, Indiana. Five-time caller. Welcome home. What's up? Great. I want to thank you for all the mad money you've helped my family make over the years. My wife and I want to retire before age 50. Your wisdom and guidance have put us on track for that. Wow. Thank you so much. Hey, you are terrific. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. What's up? Give them to me, Chad. Yeah, I'd like to uh, see what you think of this portfolio. Uh, AT&T, BP, Cedar Fair, PPL, and Target. Well, here's a man that likes yield. 
And I'm so thrilled about those nice things about making money for people. Okay, Cedar Fair, we started to warm up to again. That's a real estate investment trust that uh, has a high yielder. PPL, I used to pay them a bill every single month. It's a great utility. ATT, we just did a nice piece the other day about how smart the guys at Elliott are to be able to change things up. Target is the lowest yielder you have, but also the highest grower. That's perfect. BP is the highest oil company that can actually raise dividend continually. Oil, retail, telco, entertainment. And utility, that's perfect. Perfect. Uh, Nassim in New York. Nassim. Hey, Jim. Love the show. Hope you're doing well. Thank you. Uh, So after selling my retail stocks, my top five positions are GE, Altria, AT&T, Kraft Heinz, and Amazon. Okay. Very, very portfolio. Uh, Altria, the tobacco company, remember, they made that big investment in Juul, and I think Juul should be done by prescription, but I am alone right now on that theory. Uh, General Electric, I think Larry Culp is making the big turn for that industrial. ATT, we've gone over that. I think Elliott's doing a terrific job trying to get it so it's a little more growth. Uh, Amazon, one of our absolute favorite stocks, maybe my favorite. Kraft Heinz, not my favorite. Dividend already slashed. Don't like it. Ought to be in healthcare. Got to make that change. Tobacco, industrial, telco, uh, Amazon, is digital uh, internet and then Kraft Heinz goes. Uh, I'd rather see you in. Uh, we, did, we just did. Um, uh, how about CVS? Let's do CVS, okay? Because had a great recommendation today by Deutsche Bank. Anthony in, in Michigan. Anthony. Booyah, Dr. Kramer. Oh, I'd like to know if I'm diversified. Okay. My stock picks are Berkshire B, Amazon, Johnson and Johnson. Disney and waste management. What do you think? Well, I think we got to. I think we got it going again here. Conglomerate, a company that's involved with waste disposal, fabulous entertainment company, pristine AAA balance sheet, well, along with Microsoft, the only two that is under assault from the planet's bar. But I think overall, we got to ride it through, as I said on my conference call today for club members, and then Amazon. So we've got the digital retailer. We've got. Uh, the great conglomerate, we got a, a trash disposal company, entertainment, and drug. That is perfect, too. I say congratulations to all contestants. Pretty darn good. Stick with Kramer. Look, I'm a little uncomfortable with the market. It's been up for seven straight days. The last part of the day was not good. We're very overbought. So all I'm saying is let it come in a little. No need to be a hero. I told club members today, you know what? We are raising some cash here. We just feel like it's the right thing to do. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cameron. I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.